Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other who will fight for us, save but you, our God. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Memento Traditionis podcast. On this episode, I will be reading from Dom Prosper Guerinje's The Liturgical Year. This is coming out of Volume 3, which is the second book on Christmas. Now, if you're listening to this shortly after I release this episode, you might be asking, why am I reading about Christmas? Today is January 16th, and by many accounts, this would be way too late for the Christmas season. But in fact, in the traditional calendar, we are still in the Christmas season, and that does not end for another couple weeks. So I thought it was fitting, and better late than never, to read from Dom Prosper Guerinje's book, The Liturgical Year, on Christmas. The History of Christmas We apply the name Christmas to the 40 days which begin with the Nativity of our Lord, December 25th, and end with the purification of the Blessed Virgin, February 2nd. It is a period which forms a distinct portion of the liturgical year, as distinct by its own special spirit from every other as our Advent, Lent, Easter, or Pentecost. One same mystery is celebrated and kept in view during the whole whole 40 days. Neither the feasts of the saints, which so abound during the season, nor the time of Septuagesima, with its mournful purple, which often begins before Christmas tide is over, seem able to distract our Holy Mother the Church from the immense joy of which she received the good tidings from the angels on the glorious night for which the world had been longing for a thousand years. The faithful will remember that the liturgy commemorates this long expectation by the four penitential weeks of Advent. The custom of celebrating the solemnity of our Savior's nativity by a feast or commemoration of forty days' duration is founded on the Holy Gospel itself, for it tells us that the Blessed Virgin Mary, after spending forty days in the contemplation of the divine fruit of her glorious maternity, went to the temple, there to fulfill in most perfect humility the ceremonies which the law demanded of the daughters of Israel when they became mothers. The feast of Mary's purification is, therefore, part of that of Jesus' birth, and the custom of keeping this holy and glorious period of forty days as one continued festival has every appearance of being a very ancient one, at least in the Roman Church. And firstly, with regard to our Savior's birth on December 25th, we have St. John Chrysostom telling us in his homily for this feast that the Western Churches had, from the very commencement of Christianity, kept it on this day. He is not satisfied with merely mentioning the tradition. He undertakes to show that it is well-founded, inasmuch as the Church of Rome has every means of knowing the true day of our Savior's birth, since the acts of the enrollment taken in Judea by a command of Augustus were kept in the public archives of Rome. The holy doctor adduces a second argument, which he founds upon the Gospel of St. Luke, and he reasons thus, We know from the sacred scriptures that it must have been in the fast of the seventh month that the priest Zachary had the vision in the temple, after which Elizabeth, his wife, conceived St. John the Baptist. Hence it follows that the Blessed Virgin, having as the evangelist St. Luke relates, received the angel Gabriel's visit 
and conceived the Savior of the world in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that is to say, in March, the birth of Jesus must have taken place in the month of December. But it was not till the fourth century that the churches of the East began to keep the feast of our Savior's birth in the month of December. Up to that period, they had kept it at one time on the 6th of January, thus uniting it under the generic term of Epiphany with the manifestation of our Savior made to the Magi, and in them to the Gentiles. At another time, as St. Clement of Alexandria tells us, they kept it on the 25th of month Pekon, May 15th, or on the 25th of the month Farmouth, April 20th. St. John Chrysostom, in the homily we have just cited, which he gave in 386, tells us that the Roman custom of celebrating the birth of our Savior on December 25th had then only been observed ten years in the Church of Antioch. It is probable that this change had been introduced in obedience to the wishes of the Apostolic See, which, is, which received additional weight by the edict of the emperors Theodosius and Valentinian, which appeared towards the close of the 4th century and decreed that the Nativity and Epiphany of our Lord should be made two distinct festivals. The only church that has maintained the custom of celebrating the two mysteries on January 6th is that of Armenia, owing no doubt to the circumstance of that country not being under the authority of the emperors, as also because it was withdrawn at an early period from the influence of Rome by schism and heresy. The Feast of Our Lady's Purification with which the 40 days of Christmas close, is in the Latin church of very great antiquity, so ancient indeed as to preclude the possibility of our fixing the date of its institution. According to the unanimous opinion of the liturgists, it is the most ancient of all the feasts of the Holy Mother of God, and as her purification is related in the gospel itself, rightly infer that its anniversary was solemnized at the very commencement of Christianity. Of course, this is only to be understood of the Roman Church, for as regards the Oriental Church, we find that this feast was not definitely fixed to February 2nd until the reign of Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. It is true that the Eastern Christians had previously to that time a sort of commemoration of this mystery, but it was far from being a universal custom, and it was kept a few days after the Feast of Our Lord's Nativity, and not on the day itself of Mary's going to, up to the temple. But what is the characteristic of Christmas in the Latin liturgy? It is twofold. It is joy, which the whole church feels of the coming of the divine word in the flesh. And it is admiration of that glorious virgin who was made the mother of God. There is scarcely a prayer or a rite in the liturgy of this glad season which does not imply these two grand mysteries, an infant God and a virgin mother. For example, on all Sundays and feasts, which are not doubles, the Church, throughout these forty days, makes a commemoration of the fruitful virginity of the Mother of God by three special prayers in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. She begs the suffrage of Mary by proclaiming her quality of Mother of God and her inviolate purity, which remained in her even after she had given birth to her son. And again, the magnificent anthem, Alma Redemptoris, composed by the monk Hermann Contractus, continues up to the very day of the purification to be the termination of each canonical hour. It is by such manifestations of her love and veneration that the Church, honoring the Son and the Mother, testifies her holy joy 
during this season of the liturgical year, which we call Christmas. Our readers are aware that when Eastern Sunday falls at its latest, that is, in April, the ecclesiastical calendar counts as many as six Sundays after the Epiphany. Christmastide, that is, the 40 days between Christmas Day and the Purification, includes sometimes four out of these six Sundays, frequently only two, and sometimes only one, as in the case when Easter comes so early as to necessitate keeping Septuagesima and even Sexagesima Sunday in January. Still, nothing is changed, as we have already said, in the ritual observances of this joyous season, excepting only that on those two Sundays, the forerunners of Lent, the vestments are purple, and the Gloria in excelsis is omitted. Although our Holy Mother, the Church, honors with a special devotion the mystery of the divine infancy during the whole season of Christmas, yet she is obliged to introduce into the liturgy of the same season passages from the Holy Gospels, which seem premature inasmuch as they relate to the active life of Jesus. This is owing to there being less than six months allotted by the calendar for the celebration of the entire work of our redemption. In other words, Christmas and Easter are so near each other, even when Easter is as late as it can be, that mysteries must of necessity be crowded into the interval. And this entails anticipation. And yet the liturgy never loses sight of the divine babe and his incomparable mother, and never tires in their praises during the whole period of the nativity to the day when Mary comes to the temple to present her Jesus. The Greeks, too, make frequent commemorations of the maternity of Mary and their offices of this season, but they have a special veneration for the twelve days between Christmas Day and the Epiphany, which in their liturgy are called the Dodecameron. During this time they observe no days of abstinence from flesh meat, and the emperors of the East had, out of respect for the great mystery, decreed that no servile work should be done, and that the courts of law should be closed until after, after January 6th. From this outline of the history of the Holy Season, we can understand what is the characteristic of the second portion of the liturgical year, which we call Christmas, and which has ever been a season most dear to the Christian world. What are the mysteries embodied in its liturgy will be shown in the following chapter. The Mystery of Christmas Everything is mystery in this holy season. The Word of God, whose generation is before the day star, is born in time, a child is God. A virgin becomes a mother and remains a virgin. Things divine are commingled with those that are human. And the sublime, the ineffable antithesis expressed by the beloved disciple in those words of his gospel, the word was made flesh, is repeated in a thousand different ways in all the prayers of the church. And rightly, for it admirably embodies the whole of the great portent which unites in one person the nature of man, and the nature of God. The splendor of this mystery dazzles the understanding, but it inundates the hearts with joy. It is the consummation of the designs of God in time. It is the endless subject of admiration and wonder to the angels and saints, nay, is the source and cause of their beatitude. Let us see how the Church offers this mystery to her children, veiled under the symbolism of her liturgy. The four weeks of our preparation are over. They were the image of the four thousand years which preceded the great coming. 
and we have reached the 25th day of the month of December as a long-desired place of sweet rest. But why is it that the celebration of our Savior's birth should be the perpetual privilege of this one fixed day? Whilst the whole liturgical cycle has every year to be changed and remodeled in order to yield that every varying day, which is to be the feast of his resurrection, Easter Sunday. The question is a very natural one, and we find it proposed and answered even so far back as the 4th century, and that too by St. Augustine in his celebrated epistle to Januarius. The Holy Doctor offers this explanation. We solemnize the day of our Savior's birth in order that we may honor that birth, which was for our salvation. But the precise day of the week on which he was born is void of any mystical signification. Sunday, on the contrary, the day of our Lord's resurrection, is the day marked in the Creator's designs to express a mystery which was to be commemorated for all ages. St. Isidore of Seville, and the ancient interpreter of sacred rites, who, for a long time, was supposed to be the learned Alcuin, have also adopted this explanation of the Bishop of Hippo, and our readers may see their words interpreted by Durandus in his rationale. These writers then observed that as according to a sacred tradition, the creation of man took place on a Friday, and our Savior suffered death also on a Friday for the redemption of man. That as, moreover, the resurrection of our Lord was on the third day after his death, that is, on a Sunday, which is the day on which the light was created, as we learn from the book of Genesis. The two solemnities of Jesus' passion and resurrection, says St. Augustine, do not only remind us of those divine facts, but they moreover represent and signify some other mysterious and holy thing. And yet we are not to suppose that because the feast of Jesus' birth is not fixed to any particular day of the week, there is no mystery expressed by its being always on the 25th of December. For firstly, we may observe with the old liturgists that the feast of Christmas is kept by turns on each of the days of the week that thus its holiness may cleanse and rid them of the curse which Adam's sin had put upon them. But secondly, the great mystery of the 25th of December, being the feast of our Savior's birth, has reference not to the division of time marked out by God himself, which is called the week, but to the course of the great luminary which gives life to the world, because it gives its light and warmth. Jesus our Savior, the light of the world, was born when the night of idolatry and crime was at its darkest, and the day of his birth, the 25th of December, is that on which the material sun begins to gain his ascendancy over the reign of gloomy night and to show the world his triumph of brightness. In our Advent, we showed after the Holy Fathers that the diminution of the physical light may be considered an emblematic of those dismal times which precede the Incarnation. We joined our prayers with those of the people of the Old Testament, and with our Holy Mother, the Church, we cried out to the Divine Orient, the Son of Justice, that he would deign to come and deliver us from the twofold death of body and soul. God has heard our prayers, and it is on the day of the winter solstice, which the pagans of old made so much by their fears and rejoicings, that he gives us both the increase of the natural light and him who is the light of our souls. St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Ambrose, St. Maximus of Turin, 
St. Leo, St. Bernard, and the principal liturgists dwell with complacency on this profound mystery which the creator of the universe has willed should mark both the natural and the supernatural world. We shall find the church also making continual allusion to it during the season of Christmas, as she did in that of Advent. On this, the day which the Lord hath made, says St. Gregory of Nyssa, darkness decreases, light increases, and night is driven back again. No, brethren, it is not by chance, nor by any created will, that this natural change begins on the day when he shows himself in the brightness of his coming, which is the spiritual life of the world. It is nature revealing under this symbol a secret to them whose eye is quick enough to see it, to them, I mean, who are able to appreciate this circumstance of our Savior's coming. Nature seems to me to say, No, O man, that under the things which I show thee mysteries lie concealed. Hast thou not seen the night that had grown so long suddenly checked? Learn hence that the black night of sin, which had reached its height by the accumulation of every guilty device, is this day stopped in its course. Yes, from this day forward its duration shall be shortened, until at length there shall be naught but light. Look, I pray thee, on the sun, and see how his rays are stronger and his position higher in the heavens. Learn from that how the other light, the light of the gospel, is now shedding itself over the whole earth. Let us, my brethren, rejoice, cries out St. Augustine. This day is sacred not because of the visible sun, but because of the birth of him who is the invisible creator of the sun. He chose this day whereon to be born, as he chose the mother of whom to be born, and he made both the day and the mother. The day he chose was that of which the light begins to increase, and it typifies the work of Christ who renews our interior man day by day. For the eternal creator, having willed to be born in time, his birthday would necessarily be in harmony with the rest of his creation. The same Holy Father in another sermon from the same feast gives us the interpretation of a mysterious expression of St. John the Baptist, which admirably confirms the tradition of the Church. The great precursor said on one occasion when speaking of Christ, He must increase, but I must decrease. These prophetic words signify in their literal sense that the Baptist's mission was at its close because Jesus was entering upon his. But they convey, as St. Augustine assures us, a second meaning. John came into this world at the season of the year when the length of the day decreases. Jesus was born in the season when the length of the day increases. Thus there is a mystery both in the rising of that glorious star, the Baptist, at the summer solstice, and in the rising of the divine sun in the dark season of winter. There have been men who dared to scoff at Christianity as a superstition, because they discovered that the ancient pagans used to keep a feast on the, of the sun on the winter solstice. In their shallow erudition, they concluded that a religion could not be divinely instituted, which had certain rites or customs originating in an analogy to certain phenomena of this world. In other words, these writers denied what Revelation asserts, namely, that God only created this world for the sake of his Christ and his church. The very facts which these enemies of our holy religion brought forward as objections to the true faith are, to us Catholics, additional proof of its being worthy of our most devoted love. Thus, then, we have explained the fundamental mystery of these forty days of Christmas, 
by having shown the grand secret hid, hidden in the choice made by God's eternal decree, that the 25th day of December should be the birthday of God upon this earth. Let us now respectively study another mystery, that which is involved in the place where this birth happened. This place is Bethlehem. Out of Bethlehem, says the prophet, shall he come forth, that is to be the ruler in Israel. The Jewish priests are well aware of the prophecy, and a few days hence will tell it to Herod. But why was this insignificant town chosen in preference to every other to be the birthplace of Jesus? Be attentive, Christians, to the mystery. The name of the city of David signifies the house of bread. Therefore did he, who was the living bread, come down from heaven, chose it for his first visible home. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert and are dead. But lo, here is the Savior of the world come to give life to his creature, man, by means of his own divine flesh, which is meat indeed. Up to this time the Creator and the creature have been separated from each other. Henceforth they shall abide together in closest union. The Ark of the Covenant containing the manna which fed, but the body is now replaced by the Ark of a new covenant, purer and more incorruptible than in the other, the incomparable Virgin Mary, who gives us Jesus, the bread of the angels, the nourishment which will give us a divine transformation. For this Jesus himself has said, He that eateth my flesh abideth in me, and I in him. It is for this divine transformation that the world was in expectation for four thousand years, and for which the church prepared herself by four weeks of Advent. It has come at last, and Jesus is about to enter within us, if we will but receive him. And he has to be united to each one of us in particular, just as he is united by his incarnation to the whole human race. And for this end he wishes to become our bread, our spiritual nourishment. His coming into the souls of men at this mystic season has no other aim than this union. He comes not to judge the world, but that the world may be saved by him, and that all may have life and may have it more abundantly. This divine lover of our souls will not be satisfied, therefore, until he have substituted himself in our place, so that we may live not we ourselves, but he in us. And in order that the, this mystery may be effected in a sweeter way, it is under the form of an infant that this beautiful fruit of Bethlehem wishes first to enter into us, there to grow afterwards in wisdom and age before God and men. And when, having thus visited us by his grace and nourished us in his love, he shall have changed us into himself, there shall be accomplished in us a still further mystery, having become one in spirit and heart with Jesus, the Son of the Heavenly Father, we shall also become sons of the same God our Father. The beloved disciple, speaking of this, our dignity, cries out, Behold, what manner of charity the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called and should be the sons of God. We will not now stay to consider this immense happiness of the Christian soul, as we shall have a more fitting occasion further on to speak of it, and show by what means it is to be maintained and increased. There is another subject, too, which we regret being obliged to notice only in a passing way. It is that, from the day itself of our Savior's birth, even to the day of Our Lady's purification, is in the calendar an extraordinary richness of saints' feasts, doing homage to the master feast of Bethlehem, and clustering in adoring love round the crib of the infant God. 
to say nothing of the four great stars which shine so brightly near our divine sun, for whom they borrow all their own grand beauty. St. Stephen, St. John the Evangelist, the Holy Innocents, and our own St. Thomas of Canterbury, what other portion of the liturgical year is there that can show within the same number of days so brilliant a constellation? The Apostolic College contributes its two grand luminaries, St. Peter and St. Paul, the first in his chair of Rome, the second in the miracle of his conversion. The martyr host sends us the splendid champions of Christ, Timothy, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Vincent, and Sebastian. The radiant line of Roman pontiffs blends us four of its glorious links, named Sylvester, Telesophorus, Hyginus, and Marcellus. The sublime school of holy doctors offers us Hilary, John Chrysostom, and Ildephonus. And in their company stand a fourth bishop, the amiable Francis de Sales. The confessor kingdom is represented by Paul the Hermit, Anthony the conqueror of Satan, Maris the apostle of the cloister, Peter Nolasco, the deliverer of captives, and Raymond of Penafort, the oracle of canon law and guide of the consciences of men. The army of defenders of the church deputes the pious King Canute, who died in defense of our Holy Mother, and Charlemagne, who loved to sign himself the humble champion of the church. The choir of holy virgins gives us the sweet Agnes, the generous Ermentiana, the invincible Martina, and lastly, from the saintly ranks which stand below the virgins, the holy widows, we have Paula, the enthusiastic lover of Jesus' crib. Truly, our Christmas tide is a glorious festive season. What magnificence in its calendar! What a banquet for us in its liturgy! A word upon the symbolism of the colors used by the church during this season. White is her Christmas vestment, and she employs this color at every service from the Christmas day to the octave of the Epiphany. To honor her two martyrs, Stephen and Thomas of Canterbury, she vests in red. And to condole with Rachel wailing her murdered innocence, she puts on purple. But these are the only exceptions. And every other day of the twenty, she expresses by her white robes the gladness to which the angels invited the world, the beauty of our divine Son that has risen in Bethlehem, the spotless purity of the Virgin Mother, and the clean-heartedness which they should have who come to worship at the mystic crib. During the remaining twenty days, the church vests in accordance with the feasts she keeps. She varies the color so as to harmonize either with the red roses which wreath a martyr, or with the white amaranths which grace her bishops and her confessors, or again with the spotless lilies which crown her virgins. On the Sundays which come during this time, unless there occur a feast requiring red or white, or unless Septuagesima has begun in three mournful weeks, of preparation for Lent. The color of the vestments is green. This, says the interpreters of the liturgy, is to teach us that in the birth of Jesus, who is the flower of the fields, we first receive the hope of salvation, and that after the bleak winter of heathendom and the synagogue, there opened the verdant springtime of grace. With this, we must close our mystical interpretation of those rites which belong to Christmas in general. Our readers will have observed that there are many other sacred and symbolic usages to which we have not even alluded. But as the mysteries to which they belong are peculiar to certain days and are not, so to speak, common 
to this portion of the liturgical year, we intend to treat them fully of them as we meet with them on their proper feasts. Practice during Christmas. The time has now come for the faithful soul to reap the fruit of the efforts she made during the penitential weeks of Advent to prepare a dwelling place for the Son of God, who desires to be born within her. The nuptials of the Lamb are come, and his spouse hath prepared herself. Now the spouse is the church, the spouse is also every faithful soul. Our Lord gives his whole self to the whole flock, and to each sheep of the flock, with as much love as though he loved but the one. What garments shall we put on to go and meet the bridegroom? Where shall we find the pearls and jewels wherewith to deck our souls for this happy meeting? Our Holy Mother, the Church, will tell us all this in her liturgy. Our best plan for spending Christmas is undoubtedly to keep close to her and to do what she does, for she is most dear to God, and being our mother, we ought to obey all her injunctions. But before we speak of this mystic coming of the incarnate word into our souls, before we tell the secrets of that sublime familiarity between the creator and the creature, let us first learn from the church the duties which human nature and each of our souls owes to the divine infant whom the heavens have at length given to us as the refreshing dew we ask them to rain down upon our earth. During Advent, we united with the saints of the old law in praying for the coming of the Messiahs, our Redeemer. Now that he has come, let us consider what is the homage we must pay him. The church offers to the infant God during this holy season the tribute of her profound adoration, the enthusiasm of her exceeding joy, the return of her unbounded gratitude, and the fondness of her intense love. These four offerings, adoration, joy, gratitude, and love, must be also those of every Christian to his Jesus, his Emmanuel, the babe of Bethlehem. The prayers of the liturgy will express all four sentiments in a way that no other devotions could do. But the better to appropriate to ourselves these admirable formulas of the Church, let us understand thoroughly the nature of each of these four sentiments. The first of our duties at our Savior's crib is adoration. Adoration is religion's first act. But there is something in the mystery of our Lord's birth which seems to make this duty doubly necessary. In heaven the angels veil their faces and prostrate themselves before the throne of Jehovah. The four and twenty elders are forever casting their crowns before the throne of the Lamb. What then shall we do, we who are sinners and unworthy members of the tribe of the Redeemer? Now that this same great God shows himself to us, humbled for our sakes and stripped of all his glory, now that the duties of the creature to his creator are fulfilled by the creator himself, now that the eternal God bows down not only before the sovereign majesty of the Godhead, but even before sinful man, his creature. Let us endeavor to make, by our profound adorations, some return to the God who has thus humbled himself for us. Let us thus give him back some little of that whereof he has deprived himself out of love for us, and in obedience to the will of his Father. It is incumbent on us to emulate as far as possible the sentiments of the angels in heaven and never to approach the divine infant without bringing with us the incense of our soul's adoration, the protestation of our own extreme unworthiness, and lastly, the homage of our whole being. All this is due to the infinite majesty of the babe of Bethlehem, who is the more worthy of every tribute we can pay him, because he has made himself thus little for our sakes.
Unhappy we, if the apparent weakness of the divine child or the familiarity wherewith he is ready to, cr to caress us should make us negligent in this our first duty or forget what he is and what we are. The example of his blessed mother will teach us to be thus humble. Mary was humble in the presence of her God even before she became his mother. But once his mother, she compared herself before him who was her God and her child with greater humility than ever. We too, poor sinners, sinners so long and so often, we must adore with all the power of our soul him who has come down so low. We must study to find out how, by our self-humiliation, to make him amends for the crib, these swathing bands, this eclipse of his glory. And yet all our humiliations will never bring us so low as that we shall be on a level with his lowliness. No, only God could reach the humiliations of God. But our mother, the church, does not only offer to the infant God the tribute of her profound adoration. The mystery of Emmanuel, that is, of God with us, is to her a source of singular joy. Look at her sublime canticles for this holy season, and you will find the two sentiments admirably blended, her deep reverence for her God and her glad joy at his birth. Joy, did not the very angels come down and urge her to it? She therefore studies to imitate the blithe shepherds who ran for joy to Bethlehem and the glad magi who were well nigh out of themselves with delight when on quitting Jerusalem the star was again appeared and led them to the cave where the child was. Joy at Christmas is a Christian instinct which originated those many carols which, like so many other beautiful traditions of the ages of faith, are unfortunately dying out amongst us but which Rome still encourages gladly welcoming each year those rude musicians, the Pifarari, who come down from the Apennines and make the streets of the Eternal City re-echo with the, their shrill melodies. Come then, faithful children of the Church, let us take our share in her joy. This is not the season for sighing or for weeping, for unto us a child is born, He for whom we have been so long waiting has come, and he has come to dwell among us. Great indeed and long was our suspense, so much the more let us love our possessing him. The day will too soon come when this child, now born to us, will be the man of sorrows, and then we will compassionate him. But at present we must rejoice and be glad at his coming and sing round his crib with the angels. Heaven sends us a present of its own joy. We need joy, and forty days are not too many for us to get it well into our hearts. The scripture tells us that a secure mind is like a continual feast, and a secure mind can only be where this, there is peace. Now, it is peace which these blessed days bring to the earth. Peace, says the angels to men of goodwill. Intimately and inseparably united with this exquisite mystic joy is the sentiment of gratitude. Gratitude is indeed due to him who, neither deterred by our unworthiness, nor restrained by the infinite respect which becomes his sovereign majesty, deigned to be born on his own creature and have a stable for his birthplace. Oh, how vehemently must he not have desired to advance the work of our salvation to remove everything which could make us afraid of approaching him, and to encourage us by his own example to return by the path of humility 
to the heaven we had strayed from by pride. Gratefully, therefore, let us receive the precious gift, this divine babe, our deliverer. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, the Father who hath so loved the world as to give his only Son. He, the Son, unreservedly ratifies his Father's will and comes to offer himself because it is his own will. How, as the Apostle expresses it, hath not the Father with him given us all things? O gift inestimable, how shall we be able to repay it by suitable gratitude, we who are so poor and not to know how to appreciate it? God alone and the divine infant in his crib know the value of the mystery of Bethlehem, which is given to us. Shall our debt then never be paid? Not so. We can pay it by love, which, though finite, gives itself without measure and may grow forever in intensity. For this reason, the church, after she has offered her adoration and hymns and gratitude to her infant Savior, gives him also her tenderest love. She says to him, How beautiful art thou, my beloved one, and how comely! How sweet to me is thy rising, O divine Son of Justice! How my heart glows in the warmth of thy beams! Nay, dearest Jesus, the means thou usest for gaining me over thyself are irresistible, the feebleness and humility of a child. Thus do all her words end in love, and her adoration, praise, and thanksgiving, when she expresses them in her canticles, are transformed into love. Christians, let us imitate our mother and give our hearts to our Emmanuel. The shepherds offer him their simple gifts, the magi bring him their rich presents, and no one must appear before the divine infant without something worthy his acceptance. Know then that nothing will please him but that which he came to seek, our love. It was for this that he came down from heaven. Hard indeed is that heart which can say, He shall not have my love. These then are the duties we owe to our divine master in his first coming, which, as St. Bernard says, is in the flesh and in weakness, and is for the salvation, not for the judgment of the world. As regards that other coming, which is to be in majesty and power on the last day, we have meditated upon it during Advent. The fear of the wrath to come should have roused our souls from their lethargy and have prepared them by humility of heart to receive the visit of Jesus in that secret coming which he makes to the soul of man. It is the ineffable mystery of this intermediate coming that we are now going to explain. We have shown elsewhere how the time of Advent belongs to that period of the spiritual life which is called in mystic theology the purgative way during which the soul cleanses herself from sin and the occasions of sin by the fear of God's judgments and by combating against evil concupiscence. We are taking it for granted that every faithful soul has journeyed through these rugged paths, which must be gone through before she could be admitted to the feast to which the church invites all mankind, saying to them on the Saturday of the second week of Advent, these words of the prophet Isaiah, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. We have patiently waited for him, and we shall rejoice and be joyful in his salvation. As in the house of our Heavenly Father, there are many mansions. So likewise, on the grand solemnity of Christmas, when these words of Isaiah are realized, the church sees amongst the countless throng who receive the bread of life a great variety of sentiments and dispositions. Some were dead and the graces given during the holy season of Advent have restored them to life. Others whose spiritual life had long been healthy 
have so spent their advent that its holy exercises have redoubled their love for the, of the Lord, and their entrance into Bethlehem has been to them a renewal of their soul's life. Now every soul that has been admitted to Bethlehem, that is to say, into the house of bread, and has been united with him who is the light of the world, that soul no longer walks in darkness. The mystery of Christmas is one of illumination, and the grace it produces in the soul that corresponds with it places her in the st second stage of the mystic life, which is called the illuminative life. Henceforward, then, we need no longer worry ourselves watching for our Savior's arrival. He has come, he has shone upon us, and we are resolved to keep up the light, nay, to cherish its growth within us. In, pro in proportion, as the liturgical year unfolds, its successive seasons of mysteries and graces. God grant that we may reflect in our souls the Church's progressive development of this divine light and be led by its brightness to that union which crowns both the year of the Church and the faithful soul which has spent the year under the Church's guidance. But in the mystery of Christmastide, this light is given to us, so to speak, softened down. Our weakness required that it should be so. It is indeed the divine word, the wisdom of the Father, that we are invited to know and imitate. But this word, this wisdom, are shown us under the appearance of a child. Let nothing keep us from approaching him. We might fear were he seated on a throne in his palace, but he is lying in a crib in a stable. Were it the time of his fatigues, his bloody sweat, his cross, his burial, or even of his glory and his victory, we might say we had not courage enough. But what courage is needed to go near him in Bethlehem, where all is sweetness and silence, and a simple little babe? Come to him, says the psalmist, and be enlightened. Where shall we find an interpreter of the twofold mystery which is wrought at this holy season? The mystery of the infancy of Jesus in the soul of man, and the mystery of the infancy of man's soul in his Jesus. None of the Holy Fathers has so admirably spoken upon it as St. Leo. Let us listen to his grand words. Although that childhood, which the majesty of the Son of God did not disdain to assume, has developed by growth of age into the fullness of the perfect man, and the triumph of his passion and resurrection having been achieved, all the humiliations he submitted to for our sakes are past. Nevertheless, the feast we are now keeping brings back to us the sacred birth of the Virgin Mary's child, Jesus our Lord, so that whilst adoring his birth, we are in truth celebrating our own commencement of life. For the generation of Christ is the origin of the Christian people, and the birthday of him that is our head is the birthday of us that are his body. It is true that each Christian has his own rank, and the children of the church are born each in their respective times. Yet the whole mass of the faithful, once having been regenerated in the font of baptism, are born on this day of Christmas, together with Christ, just as they are crucified together with him in his passion, and have risen together with his resurrection, and in his ascension are placed at the right hand of the Father, for every believer, no matter in what part of the world he may be living, is born again in Christ. His birth, according to nature, is not taken into account. He becomes a new man by a second birth. 
Neither is he any longer called of the family of his father in the flesh, but of the family of our Redeemer, who unto this was made a son of man, that we might become the sons of God. Yes, this is the mystery achieved in us by the holy season of Christmas. It is expressed in those words of the passage from St. John's Gospel, which the Church has chosen for the third Mass of the Great Feast. As many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God, to them that believeth in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that all they who have been purified their souls freed themselves from the slavery of flesh and blood, and renounced everything which is of man, inasmuch as man means sinner, which now to open their hearts to the divine word, that is, to the light which shineth in the darkness, which darkness did not com comprehend. These, I say, are born with Jesus. They are born of God. They begin a new life, as did the Son of God himself in this mystery of his birth in Bethlehem. How beautiful are these first beginnings of the Christian life! How great is the glory of Bethlehem, that is, of our Holy Mother the Church, the true house of bread! For in her midst there is produced during these days of Christmas and everywhere throughout the world a countless number of sons of God. O oh, the unceasing vitality of our mysteries, as the Lamb who was slain from the beginning of the world sacrifices himself without ceasing ever since his real sacrifice. So also, once born of the Holy Virgin, his mother, he makes it a part of his glory to be ceaselessly born in the souls of men. We are not, therefore, to think for a moment that the dignity of Mary's divine maternity is lessened, or that our souls enjoy the same grand honor which was granted to her. Far from that, let us, as Venerable Bede says, raise our voice from amid the crowd, as did the women in the gospel, and say to our Savior with the Catholic Church, of which that woman was the type. Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the breast that gave thee suck. Mary's prerogative is indeed incommunicable, and it makes her the mother of God and the mother of men. But we must also remember the answer made by our Savior to the woman who spoke these words. Yea, rather, said Jesus, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Hereby declaring, continues the venerable bead, that not only is she blessed who merited to conceive in the flesh the word of God, but they also who endeavor to conceive the same word spiritually by the hearing of faith, and to give him birth and nourish him by keeping and doing what is good, either in their own or their neighbor's heart. For the mother of God herself was blessed, in that she was made for a time the minister to the wants of the incarnate word. But much more blessed was she, in that she was, and ever will be, the keeper of the endure of the love due to the, her same Son. Is it not the same truth which our Lord teaches us on that other occasion, where he says, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father that is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother? And why was the angel sent to Mary in preference to all the rest of the daughters of Israel? Be but because she had already conceived the divine word in her heart by the vehemence of her undivided love, the greatness of her profound humility, and the incomparable merit of her virginity. Why, again, is the blessed among women holy above all creatures, but because, having once conceived and brought forth the Son of God, she continues forever his mother? By her fidelity in doing the will of the Heavenly Father, by her love for the uncreated light of the Divine Word, 
and by her union as spouse with the spirit of sanctification. But no member of the human race is excluded from the honor of imitating Mary, though at a humble distance in this her spiritual maternity, for by that real birth which she gave him in Bethlehem, which we are now celebrating, and which initiated the world into the mysteries of God, this ever-blessed mother of Jesus has shown us how we may bear the resemblance of her own grand prerogative. We ought to have prepared the way of the Lord during the weeks of Advent, and if so, our hearts have conceived him. Therefore, now our good works must bring him forth, that thus our Heavenly Father, seeing not us ourselves but his own Son Jesus, now living within us, may say of each of us in his mercy what he heretofore said in very truth of the incarnate word, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let us give ear to the words of the seraphic St. Bonaventure, who in one of his sermons for Christmas Day thus explains the mystery of the birth of Jesus in the soul of man. This happy birth happens when the soul, prepared by long thought and reflection, passes at length to action, when the flesh being made subject to the spirit, good works are produced in due time. Then do interior peace and joy return to the soul. In this birth there is neither travail nor pain nor fear. Everything is admiration and delight and glory. If then, O devout soul, thou art desirous for this birth, imagine thyself to be like Mary. Mary signifies bitterness, bitterly bewails thy sins. It signifies illuminatrix, be thou illumined by thy virtues. And lastly, it signifies mistress, learn how to be mistress and controller of thy evil passions. Then will Christ be born of thee, and oh, with what happens to thyself. For it is then that the soul tastes and sees how sweet is her Lord Jesus. She experiences the sweetness when, in holy meditation, she nourishes the divine infant. When she covers him with her tears, when she clothes him with her holy longings, when she presses him to her heart in the embrace of holy tenderness, when, in a word, she cherishes him in the warmth of her glowing love. O happy crib of Bethlehem, in thee I find the King of glory. But happier still than thou, the pious soul which holds within itself him who thou couldst but hold corporally. Now that we may pass on from this spiritual conception to the birth of our Lord Jesus, in other words, that we may pass on from Advent to Christmas, we must unceasingly keep the eyes of our soul on him who wishes to be born within us, and whom, in whom the world is born to a new life. Our study and ambition should be how best to become like Jesus by imitating him. For though the imitation must needs be imperfect, yet we know from the Apostle that our Heavenly Father himself gives this as a sign of the elect, that they are made like to the image of his Son. Let us therefore hearken to the imitation of the angels and go over to Bethlehem. We know what sign will be given to us, our Jesus, a child wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a crib, so that you, O Christians, must become children. You must not disdain to be tied in the bonds of spiritual childhood. You must come down from your proud spirit and meet your Savior who has come down from heaven, and with him hide yourselves in the humility of, a, of the crib. Thus will you begin with him a new life. Thus will the light that goeth forth and increaseth even to perfect day illumine your path the whole remaining length of your journey. Thus the sight of God which leaves room for faith which you receive at Bethlehem 
will merit for you the face-to-face vision on Tabor and prepare you for the blissful union which is not merely light but the plentitude and repose of love. So far we have been speaking only of the living members of the church, whether they begin the life of grace during the holy season of Advent or were already living in the grace of the Holy Ghost when the ecclesiastical year commenced and spent their Advent in preparing to be born with Jesus to a new year of higher perfection. But how shall we overlook those of our brethren who are dead in sin, and so dead that neither the coming of their Emmanuel nor the example of the Christians throughout the universal church earnestly preparing for that coming could rouse them? No, we cannot forget them. We love them, and come to tell them, for even now they may yield to grace and live, that there hath appeared the goodness and kindness of God our Savior. If this volume of ours should perchance fall into the hands of any of those who have not yielded to the solicitations of grace which pressed them to be converted to the sweet babe of Bethlehem, their Lord and their God, who instead of spending the weeks of Advent in preparing to receive him at Christmas, lived them out as they began them in indifference and in sin, we shall perhaps be helping them to a knowledge of the grievousness of their state by reminding them of the ancient discipline of the church, which obliged all the faithful, under pain of being considered as no longer Catholics, to receive Holy Communion on Christmas Day, as well as on Easter and Whit Sundays. We find a formal decree of this obligation given on the 50th canon of the Council of Agatha, held in 506. We would also ask these poor sinners to reflect on the joy which the Church feels at seeing throughout the whole world the immense number of her children who still, in spite of the general decay of piety, keep the feast of the birth of the Divine Lamb by the sacramental participation of his body and blood. Sinners, take courage. This feast of Christmas is one of grace and mercy, of which all, both just and sinners, meet in the fellowship of that same glad mystery. The Heavenly Father has resolved to honor the birthday of his Son by granting pardon to all, save those who obstinately refuse it. Oh, how worthy is the coming of our dear Emmanuel to be honored by this divine amnesty. Nor is it we that give this invitation. It is the Church herself. Yet it is she that with divine authority invites you to begin the work of your new life on this day whereon the Son of God begins the career of his human life that we may the more worthily convey to you this, her invitation, we will borrow the words of the great and saintly bishop of the Middle Ages, the pious Rabanus Marus, who, in a homily on the nativity of our Lord, encourages sinners to come and take their place side by side with the just in the stable of Bethlehem, where even the ox and the ass recognize their master and the babe who lies there. I beseech you, dearly beloved brethren, that you receive with fervent hearts the words our Lord speaks to you through me on this most sweet feast, on which even infidels and sinners are touched with compunction, on which the wicked man is moved to mercy, the contrite heart hopes for pardon, the exile despairs not of returning to his country, and the sick man longs for his cure, on which is born the Lamb who taketh away the sins of the world, that is, Christ our Savior. On such a birthday, he that has a good conscience rejoices more than usual, and he whose conscience is guilty fears with more useful fear. Yes, it is a sweet feast, bringing true sweetness and forgiveness to all true penitents. My little children, I promise you without hesitation 
that everyone who on this day shall repent from his heart and return not to the vomit of his sins shall obtain all whatsoever he shall ask. Let him only ask with a firm faith and not return to sinful pleasures. On this day are taken away the sins of the entire world. Why needs the sinner despair? On this day, our Lord's birth, let us, dearest brethren, offer our promises to this Jesus and keep them as it is written, vow ye and pay to the Lord your God. Let us make our promises with confidence and love. He will enable us to keep them. And when I speak of promises, I would not have anyone think that I mean the promise of fleeting and earthly goods. No, I mean that each of us should offer what our Savior redeemed, namely our soul. But how, someone will say, how shall we offer our souls to him to whom they already belong? I answer, by leading holy lives, by chaste thoughts, by fruitful works, by turning away from evil, by following that which is good, by loving God, by loving our neighbor, by showing mercy, for we ourselves were in need of it before we were redeemed, by forgiving them that sin against us, for we ourselves were once in sin, by trampling on pride, since it was by pride that our first parent was deceived and fell. It is thus our affectionate mother, the church, invites sinners to the feast of the divine Lamb. Nor is she satisfied until her house be filled. The grace of a new birth given her by the Son of Justice fills the spouse of Jesus with joy. A new year has begun for her, and like all that have preceded it, it is to be rich in flower and fruit. She renews her youth as that of an eagle. She is about to unfold another cycle or year of her mysteries and to pour forth upon her faithful children the graces of which God has made the cycle to be the instrument. In this season of Christmas, we have the first fruits of these graces offered to us. They are the knowledge and the love of our infant God. Let us accept them with attentive hearts so that we may merit to advance with our Jesus in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. The Christmas mystery is the gate of all the others of the rest of the year. But it is a gate which we must all enter, for though most heavenly, yet it touches earth. Since, as St. Augustine beautifully remarks in one of his sermons for Christmas, we cannot as yet contemplate the splendor of him who was begotten of the Father before the day star. Let us then visit him who was born of the Virgin in the night hour. We cannot understand how his name continueth before the sun, let us then confess that he hath sent his tabernacle in her that is purer than the sun. We cannot as yet see the only begotten Son dwelling in the Father's bosom. Let us then think of the bridegroom that cometh out of his bride chamber. We are not yet ready for the banquet of our Heavenly Father. Let us then keep to the crib of Jesus, our Master. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.